1: Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve and I'm Phil Dobby and the title of this episode, laissez fair go mate which is probably lost on those of you who are not of an Australian extraction. But of course, part of the Aussie psyche is ensuring a fair go for all. So does that come from small government freeing up the opportunity? for everybody, or does it come from big government ensuring everyone has access to the same education and the same competitive advantage? Two very different propositions. Uh, Laissez-faire economists believe that market forces are the best way of running the economy, that if the government gets its hands into it, it'll probably stuff it up, so less regulation is a good thing, and that people and companies should basically be able to do what they want. So I guess, I mean, there is a point that one thing worse than a laissez-faire economy is one where the government does get involved and does all the wrong things. After all, laissez-faire is French for leave alone. And look, Steve, I mean, that was pretty much the argument, wasn't it, of Adam Smith, that market functions best without the government because human nature is so diverse and the consequences of government policy are so unpredictable that how can the government really know what's in everyone's best interest? So the best thing to do... Is to leave it to, and I'm doing the uh, the air quotes, the quotation marks around the invisible hand. Leave it to the invisible hand. Close quotes. Yeah, I mean that
0: was that was not just Adam Smith, but it actually came out of the the French physiocratic school to some extent. I think it was Mirabelle with the um, what's it called, the uh, fable of the bees, uh, which, with the idea of private, private virtues and public vices, and uh, which is the opposite Private private vices and public virtues, pardon me. So the idea was that everybody pursuing their own self-interest led to a better outcome collectively, uh, whereas the usual argument... And bear in mind that the laissez-faire case wasn't made in contrast to the modern state. It was made in contrast to the feudal state, which is a very, very different beast, and one element of the the feudal system which we uh, don't have any experience of these days, particularly, except in uh, the old days of international trade, is that the main source of revenue, uh, apart from self-sufficiency in, in feudal manses or feudal uh, fiefdoms, feudal estates, as they were called, uh, was to tax merchants as they went through. So to get to go to a, from, from even if you weren't going to that particular um, king's or a particular lord's realm, you're going to trade at another realm, you get through the gate, you had to pay taxes on the way. Right. And uh, it was enforced in a rather polite fashion, you know, basically it's a knife at your throat. Um, <laughs> uh, highway robbery, but highway robbery done by somebody who called themselves a knight rather than somebody who called themselves a, 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 a bandit. Right, so, so, we're, so, was,
1: so we're in effect almost acting like mini-governments because we were taking taxes for our patch of land in effect.
0: Yeah, and one of my, my favourite illustrations of that was uh, on a trip I did to Germany some some years ago uh, we went to visit a medieval castle and when you saw the location of the place it was absolutely brilliant because the castle was placed at the, the point of a bend in a river uh, where the river narrowed because of the bend and there was a cliff right behind the uh, the castle and the castle was a bit so the, the land between the... Uh, Uh, Almost all the land between the river and the the rise of the cliff was taken by the castle, and you had to walk past the most incredibly fortified system to get to the other side. And uh, basically, whatever they wanted to charge you on the way through, they could charge you. So that's that's the real origin of the attitude of laissez-faire.
1: So you're saying it, it 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 perhaps works in those times because times were so different because you could do that sort of thing. And yet, I mean, Margaret Thatcher, she wasn't quite in feudal times, but, uh, I mean, she harked back to Victorian values. And I sort of know when you start to use Margaret Thatcher in an argument, that's a bit like using Hitler in an argument, isn't it, really? You, you've po- you possibly sort of lost. already lost. But she referred to Victorian values. She was harking back to a time when the state had little influence. There wasn't much tax. Uh, people were able to stand on their own two feet and the economy supposedly prospered. And perhaps because of that laissez faire approach, I mean, that did in- in- encourage the in- Industrial Revolution in Britain rather than in Europe. Or is that a load of hogwash?
0: Uh, it's both. <laughs> There's an element of hogwash and an element of truth to it at the same time. And um, one of my, f- I think people realize who follow me on, on my blog and and have seen my debt deflation page, one of my favourite economists of all time is not an economist. He's a applied mathematician called uh, John Blatt, who wrote a book called Dynamic Economic Systems, and uh, it's out of print. But I believe that if you search on my website, you might find a link to it, uh, because I think it's one of the great you know, one of the great neglected books. Uh, one one of the patrons, by well, the way, paid me a lovely compliment, saying my book's one of the five uh, best books of economics of all time. Well, I regard John Blatt's as one of the five. Uh, and I've made it available there uh, for anybody to take a look at because everything being out of print, I think is a travesty. I'll do my best to get it in print when I have time to do that sort of stuff in the next few years. But John made the point that forget about the, the feudal origins of uh, the laissez-faire attitude. Let's take a look at how laissez-faire, when it actually to some large degree operated, because governments in the 19th century were roughly one-fifth the size that uh, they are now compared to GDP at the time, yeah. And of course, there was no, no welfare. Uh, there was, there was, the welfare was handled mainly by charities. Um, there was uh, some degree of government regulation, uh, but generally speaking, it was let it rip. And what he said, what you got out of that was a nineteenth-century trade cycle. There was a financial crisis about every ten to fifteen, maybe twenty years at most. Um, bearings collapses, the um, uh, the. Um, um, there were there, About once every 10 to 20 years, but John does a good job of, of documenting that in, in dynamic economic systems. So what you get out of it wasn't stability. You got these very dramatic booms and busts, and, of course, some of them almost led to communist uh, takeovers of little countries like England at the time, because when the collapse occurred, there was a massive increase in unemployment, and that was a good rallying call for socialists uh, opposing capitalism. So... Um, it's one of those cases, be careful what you wish for. It might not work out the way you think in your uh, little uh, hypothetical model of a world without government interference.
1: But wouldn't it also create an understanding of risk, which, uh, I mean, if we yeah. if we intervene, then we reduce that understanding of risk because we remove the, the events that are based on risks, you know, so we bail out farmers after a, a bad harvest, for example, so they don't put money away to protect themselves for the next time it happens. Uh, I mean, that, that could be the counter-argument to that, couldn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, in this case, that's one reason that I'm not, uh, I mean, I see a little, I mean there's, I'm see. i going to be having a bit of a fight with the MMT crowd in the future, so let's be a bit more uh, <laughs> frank about this sort of thing. Um, there are elements of delusion, I think, to the MMT view. The government always does things better, uh, but there's, certainly, there's there's a role, or the government always does things well, rather. Uh, there, is, there is a role in which the government getting in the way sometimes encourages trends that wouldn't be there otherwise, and um, there's much more to talk about than just this, but um, one thing which struck me when looking at the data assembled by the Bank of England after the 2008 financial crisis, they uh, did this beautiful piece of work of saying, what can we learn from 300 years of financial data? So they back, they went back to their old books, quite literally, and went back and produced a set of long-term data series they hadn't had beforehand. And one of them took a level of private debt, not as far back as I'd like it to be taken back, but back to 1880. Uh, previously, their records stopped in about 1960. And frankly, as um, uh, Jeff Tilley was the uh, statistician responsible for this at one stage, only because of my prompting and Jeff uh, agreeing with my arguments, did the uh, did the English statistician have a series of private debt in the first place. Anyway, that's by the by. Um, when you look at the data, you see that between 1880 and um, and 1920 and equally in America in 1834 which I've got synthetic data from 1834 until 1917 you see that there was a every there were plenty of booms otherwise positive credit but plenty of busts as well of negative credit and in the UK's case that meant that uh, looking at private debt not from 1880 right out to 1980 in fact um, there was Never, a, a, There was never a, a level of private debt like we see now, so what happened was the government coming in and stopping a, a, a boom, turning into a bus, turning into a, a a huge financial crisis meant that that level of private debt continued to accumulate. Right. So there's some ways in which the government's intervention has encouraged a build-up of, of, of uh, speculative excess we wouldn't have had in its absence so that that is an argument in favor of saying, well, maybe the government goes a bit too far, but there are other elements to this argument about uh, you know free trade uh, a free competitive market nirvana that, uh, that that equally have holes in them
1: well I guess part I mean one of the big holes is you know can companies and economies go too far if, if it's uh, you know is it self-regulating so for example, if we look at a, a corporation, if we don't have regulations in place. Uh, you know does the corporation start to act too much in its own interest against the interests of society but I mean there's a counter to that as well isn't there if a corporation uh, steps out of line don't people just stop buying from it?
0: Um, yeah, but the, 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 the part of where the government evolved from in America was the behaviour of what are called the, tr- the, uh, the trusts, because what happened as well during the 19th century is the formation of large companies, not just the small competitive stuff as part of the Austrian vision of a perfect world, but uh, uh, aggregations forming where companies... Uh, in in force together, being by the Rockefellers and the, the Vanderbilts and and groups of that nature, forming a monopoly of some particular area, for example, rail transport, and then um, screwing the, um, the 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 farmers and the workers in the process. So one one of the one of the ways in which they, the robber barons, as they were known, and the railroad barons as well, one of the way they accumulated their fortunes was knowing where they wanted to put the railway lines as they went through the, the United the the the, the uh, west of America. Uh, they would b- go ahead of the of the um, of the rail being established, terrorise the local towns, buy up the property cheaply, and then run the railroad through, and of course make a fortune on the increase in depreciation of the value of the land. Mm. You had similar behaviour in in wheat uh with uh, with you know i don't know that uh, that detail is is clearly but they certainly ended up um trying to bankrupt the wheat farmers Qu- quite awful behavior in other words and one of the things that i find about a lot of austrian writing about what it would be like in a, a, f- a pure market uh, economy sort of, so we're going to have these nice capitalists who don't do nasty things to each other or to the workers i'm sorry that is a fantasy and uh, you get the arse- well, that's your technical economy. You get the assholes turning up, and um, ending up with uh, with a world in which they can cloak, cloak their walls with platinum, um, which is literally what the Vanderbilts did, uh, at the expense of the of bankrupted farmers uh, back in the in the Wild West. But isn't that? I mean, surely
1: you can create. Uh- some sort of some form of legislation i know that the moment you start talking about that then you're going against yeah, the laissez faire ideal but if it, if it's causing harm to other people then surely that's 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 easy to say well that has to be against the law that's a different thing to the market uh, working working for itself. If you if you are doing something which is deliberately causing damage to other people, then surely that's illegal.
0: Yeah, but I think of course you've got to have how do you enforce it. Now, Milton Friedman would have private, private, uh, and literally quite did actually argue in favour of private police forces where you'd pay for your own police force to enforce your laws. Uh, therefore, the person who can pay <laughs> for the biggest police force wins. Uh, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't, we have to have something which attenuates. And here, my analogy is that we, we may have gone overboard with it, but I see the government as effectively an air conditioning unit uh, in the sense that you've got a, a, a private system which is actually. Actually, extremely volatile, huge ups and downs uh, in the in both economic activity and the legality and otherwise of behaviour. And what the government does is, is is an institution that operates in the opposite direction because it's not motivated directly by profit, whereas the private sector is. And that is not in itself a bad thing. But you will have uh, if the private sector gets into a slump where uh, it's over borrowed, over uh, assets are becoming worthless, they de invest. Uh, all, the, all the trends are negative, and therefore you're going to go into a slump. The government spending uh, operates like an air conditioning unit when the room gets too cold, turns on the heat, and you get a certain balancing coming out of it. So, there is this that, that side of the, the role of a government is ignored by the Austrian fanboy types of the world.
1: But I mean, do we? I mean, that's a very binary reaction from that air conditioning unit, isn't it? If the room's too hot, it makes it cold. If it's too cold, it makes it hot. I mean, do we know enough about the economy to actually be able to say, "Well, we're going to do this; it's going to have that effect."
0: Well, this is where again, there's a good argument that Koleski made uh, about the inability of planners to be able to respond as rapidly as necessary. So he was in favour of what uh, was a under the under the so-called Keynesian period, automatic stabilisers. In other words, you have things which are built into the economy. Uh, just by things like, for example, unemployment benefits that mean that when there's a downturn because of a, a, a slump and that workers are being sacked, then there's an increase in cash flow through businesses because those workers get unemployment benefits, which they otherwise wouldn't get. Now, one of the reasons we're getting a more dysfunctional state these days and something which people are then arguing in favour of going back to deregulation is a systematic decision to undermine those automatic stabilisers by things such as saying you only get unemployment benefits uh, six weeks after you um, lose your job. Now that's pretty tough for the worker, but it's also tough for the retailer because once that worker's lost a job, there's six weeks of slumping sales. So how's the retailer likely to operate act in response to that? Increase their own cutbacks. Mm. So these sorts of things, there's ignorance um, about that attenuating role. And and to some extent, because we have governments dominated by a lot of people who believe in this myth of a a world that would work out better without the government, not the saying it works perfectly with, by the way, but saying it will work better without, um, they've deliberately weakened the state in those ways, which partly comes back and supports their own argument, apparently.
1: But there is the the idea, isn't there? I mean, I'm sure you've made this point in in one of these podcasts before, that we really don't know uh, how best very often to intervene. Uh, You know, if we're we're a government, if we do something, there could be unknown consequences. So we could be making matters worse, couldn't we?
0: Yeah, we can. But um, I think we've got the 19th century as an example of what can go wrong with a with a pretty close to pure a uh, free market system, and there are, I think they said, "Well, let's let's go through some of the elements that exist there." Firstly, there's the robber baron uh, developments occurring, and you have to have a police force, you have to have laws, you have to have political power being able to impose against that sort of behaviour. That's where the that's where the antitrust legislation from America came from. Another important part of it is that, um, uh, and I see this, and I, I look at it, and I think, but I just can't see how people don't see their own. Fallacy here, but a lot of Austrian uh, style economists and and uh, String and fanboys are in favor of private money. And they say that we, what you should have is a bunch of private banks all creating money. Uh, yes, these are the ones who accept that banks actually do create money. And what the public will do is they'll choose the more responsible one. Pardon me, but bullshit, <laughs> because what happens is they, the, the public, when they've had the choice of these private banks, and they did exist in the 19th century America, and to some extent 19th century Australia and New Zealand as well, uh, the public chose the ones offering the highest parent returns. And what would happen, of course, half of these were Ponzi swindlers who'd make off with the money. So mm-hmm. there'd be a boom and a crash and, and subsequent... Um, we you know, witch hunts, trying to find the people who ran off with the money, and so forth. So the, the, the part of the vision they have of this private money working better, and uh, the, the concept they put forward often is that uh, you'd start off with a whole bunch of uh, private uh, suppliers. Some would be honest, others would not. Uh, the dishonest ones would be driven out of the market. Only the honest ones would be left, and everything would be nice and stable. with anything like that? There'd be booms and busts, and people would forget. Uh, the past wildcat behaviour and go back and we're the next one who was offering a fantastic return. After all, Charles Ponzi occurred in um, in uh, in Boston, which you can hardly call a, a, a backwater of America, uh, in 1919 to 1922. So the people's capacity to fall for a swindler uh, never have disappeared. So the idea that you'd have a stable private money system and well-functioning markets, I think is just another set of delusions.
1: But it sounds to me like what you're saying is that to try and uh uh prevent a uh, laissez-faire economy from misbehaving and 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 getting out of control there's got to be s- some sort of mechanism to try and stop people misbehaving in in whichever way through whatever loopholes they find you've got to close those loopholes and then I guess the other element is you've got this uh, th- this potential for rich-poor gaps, which you've, you've got to try and correct as well. Are they the two key elements that you need to keep control of, or, or is there more than that? Because it seems like today there's a lot more than that that the government's involved in.
0: Yeah, well, that's also a question of uh, what sort of resources... Uh, would, do you want to have managed fundamentally for profit versus those you want to have supplied no matter what. So the, mm. the key ones there end up being massive utilities like uh, power, sewerage uh, and water uh, because in, in those cases you, you don't want power to be available 23 and a half hours of a day uh, with a random distribution of when the power goes off. Uh, if that happens for an aluminium smelter, it's good by aluminium smelter. Um, so there are there are some particular services you do not want to be motivated by short term profit, and pretty much that's my area where I'd say I'd rather have the state provide that uh, at the most uh, be the minimum possible cost, rather than letting private providers get inside there with an incentive to um, to go for short term profit, and also quite frequently to cause some of the financial volatility on the markets we all remember the we all know the story of Enron to some extent people have forgotten it already i would say i would think but Enron actually managed to cause some of the blackouts in california uh at its to help its own own profit levels because it could then supply the power much more expensively from the sources it had outside california so there are there are ways in which um, you get you know, really quite robber baron behavior developing in the private sector isn't all about making a profit in a nice responsible way
1: and yet some would argue that you know places like australia and new zealand and, uh, and like switzerland possibly some of the most laissez-faire economies in the world are thus far some of the best performing economies in the world
0: oh, come on, how do you call them laissez-faire? I mean, they're laissez-stuff-up. <laughs> <Look
1: at that>. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, but you look at uh, in Australia, for example, mind you, Australia does have a big public sector, I guess, but, I mean, it does try and uh, involve the private sector in all its public sector stuff. You know, I mean, there's a very yeah, much an attitude, isn't there, of, of the, the market's got to drive things as far as Australia's concerned.
0: And that's where the NBN comes in, which has been a total catastrophe. Uh, rather than, disaster. I
1: mean, yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. rather than just a simple state provider providing a cable to the... To the, to the uh, uh, to the premises, which was the original idea of Mike Quigley. I think you know Mike Quigley, don't you?
1: Yeah, I don't know what's happened to him, but, uh, yeah, I did know him.
0: <laughs> I know him as well because he happened to be my, my my wife's boss, my first wife's boss in Alkansel. I had an immense respect for him as an engineer and a manager and uh, he's now out there sniping at the NBN because it's turned into a disaster by uh, Malcolm Turnbull and his mates, uh, first of all, trying to undermine the Labor Party uh, just by putting forward any alternative to the Labor Party's idea at the time, but also undermining the idea of what the engineers wanted to have, of having the cable going straight to the to the, to the House. And now, of course, they've got competing uh, private groups, Competing to provide the services to the houses rather than having a, a national provider, right? But here's a, uh, which, <laughs> but it's an yeah. interesting example.
1: The MBN, because and, and you know, I'm sure some laissez-faire economists would argue that it should all have been done by the by the private sector. And you know what? I might to be one of those who argues that way because the because the uh, initial decision was so anti-competitive it was sort of like well the government is going to deliver this network and we're going to do it at the expense of uh, of any investment from the private sector we're even going to close down private assets like cable networks that already exist uh because we don't want to yeah. have a competition we want to have a, a a government monopoly so that was that was an example of perhaps the government over overstepping the market and you look in in the uk where uh they're they're streets ahead i mean don't have the best broadband in the world but they are streets ahead of australia uh because you've got competing players who are wanting to roll fiber down our street i'm i live in rural surrey uh and bt and virgin media both want to run cable down our street i'd rather
0: have one cable and then two competitors down down the same cable we've had competitive travesties coming out of forcing uh, doubling and trebling of infrastructure where it's not necessary my my picture in this front of the the best uh example of a combination of state and private is what the south korean government did because they basically told their telecommunications companies we don't care how you do it um but you've got to collectively provide T t100 cable to every house in the country yeah if you want to continue yeah. operating here so your licensing depended upon that and they basically got together and built you know a, a, a more than world-class infrastructure out of which evolved firms such as samsung so there, there is a, there's, there's a there's a There's there's two dimensions to it, I think. There is. I mean, even
1: on on that, and sorry to interrupt, there's another dimension to that story as well, which is that uh, legislation there was that if you had people in a tower block uh, then, the power for that tower block needed to be provided by the telephone company, so they had the problem of how did they provide electricity for uh, uh, for copper wiring uh, to distribute into tall buildings and The cheaper solution very often was to uh, was to use fiber because it 's passive it doesn't need, uh, it doesn 't need powering along the, the, the along the network so actually. Uh, it was a commercial decision. Very often, the cheapest way of providing access into those uh, into those tower blocks was to whip out the copper and use fibre. So that was actually the the big driving force. I think you'll find in South Korea. That's
0: interesting. Again, that, that shows that was a good outcome, mm. um, but both a sort of combined market and state outcome. Yeah, but uh, but got, that, how do you that, get the balance right
1: is the question, isn't it?
0: And with, and with, there's with the trouble with uh, a lot of economic argument is that it goes for one extreme or the other. You get the you know, um, on the the right wing or the or the left wing alternative, no, absolutely no government or one hundred percent government, and um, I, I rather like the yin yang uh, position of the Asia, of Asian philosophy that there's a balance between the two, and we need to realise that's the case. So if you look at the private banking. Um, wildcat banking, unregulated, etc, cetera, etc cetera, did not work out to to el- eliminate the bad banks and just have the good ones it gave you booms and busts and, and uh, rapacious behaviour not having the government there led to the formation of, of qu- quite uh, exploitive monopolies They're literally the robber barons of the 19th century that made themselves responsible by establishing uh, oh, the peer responsible by establishing wonderful beneficial trusts in the 20th century with a fraction of the wealth they'd accumulated And you have um, provision of services, which on some cases, it's just better to have the biggest institution in the country doing it because the economy as a scale is so vast. uh, You want to have it done on on a grand scale. It will be cheaper than the private sector competing with multiple infrastructures. And you also want it provided in such a way that it's 100% reliable. Reliability is more important than price. So there's all those various factors, and I think out of that you can say, well, there is a need for a a government sector. If you did without it, and this is the point of the the podcast, of course, what would you have? Well, you wouldn't have uh, equilibrium in the market. You'd have booms and busts uh, with financial uh, bubbles being caused by speculative behaviour and people rushing to Ponzi schemes offering enormous returns, which would then, of course, plunge you into a crash later. Um, You'd have unemployment um, being quite high and to the stage we'd have political unrest uh, almost leading to the, to a call for socialism. But you'd also, and this is the, the, the other side of it from my point of view, you probably would have not have the same accumulation of private debt uh, as we've had in the 20th century. That's a clear difference between the 19th and the 20th. Uh, after the formation of large government in, after the Second World War and the Great Depression, there has never been, up till the 2008 crisis never been a period, of, of of massive negative credit so we it never wiped out the accumulation of previous booms And Is that, and, because, um, is that yeah, because, because of this price. whole risk
1: thing Yeah, I mentioned earlier, the yeah. fact that if we're stepping in too often we're removing this risk and therefore this
0: debt builds up It's also partly because politicians don't like, uh, see if a downturn occurs and it's a pure market system there's nobody to blame uh, but if we have a political system where the government has a, a substantial impact upon the economy, they get the blame, and it suits them to be uh, causing the economy to appear to be booming all the time. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to encourage a private sector bubble. Mm. So there is an element to which um, every time there's a downturn, you encourage the private sector back into speculation again. Now, that's not what the government's supposed to do. If you look at the ideal MMT argument, it's supposed to stop that sort of behaviour. In fact, it tends to, it can actually encourage it because that's one way the politicians make themselves look good
1: yeah yeah so are we saying au revoir to laissez-faire then or the, uh, do you like that Or are there elements of the thinking that we should uh, we should hang on to it, it it is a mid it is getting the balance isn't it how do you get the balance right because obviously there's there's elements of the laissez-faire economy you know pure economics that we want to make the most of but we would need the government as well. Like,
0: yeah, on that front, I like a lot of the work done by um, Mariana Mazzucotta at one, one end of the spectrum and Bill Janeway at the other. They're very com- compatible, but one argues that the government does a lot of innovation by being able to afford to waste money on things like NASA programs. So that's, that's, that's the local carawongs helping out, by the way, have you heard that in the background? Um, the government it encourages innovation through projects like NASA and even DARPA. DARPA is what gave us the internet, um, so there's innovation coming out of the government's uh, cap- capacity to create money and waste money and not worry about it. And then venture capitalists uh, fund innovation because they also can afford to waste money uh, and, and and generate innovations like you know, computers in the very first case and so on. So there's a, a blend of roles between the two and we have to get the balance as, as close as we can to right. But... Um, Certainly, at the moment, what we've done with the preventing uh, collapses with the scale of government spending, maybe we've encouraged a number of speculative bubbles, which have gone on long, far longer than they would have done without a private. Uh, if the if the government had been smaller.
1: Okay, we'll leave it on that point. Uh, very good, thank you, uh, Steve. By the way, awful line, uh, your Aussie broadband. uh It's a demonstration. We've we've heard how bad it can be uh, without the right oh, government really investment.
0: It really dropped off
1: did it? No, oh, it's been a bit been, been a bit shaky. But we just about heard you. Anyway, catch you next time okay uh, Steve Keane, who is on holiday back in Sydney right now and he's going to be there for our next podcast as well hopefully we get a better line uh, again we're going to look at a fairly rudimentary topic next time is economics a science we criticised neoclassic economics in a recent edition when we were looking at post-Keynesian economics and some criticised Keynesian and post-Keynesian economics for exactly the same reason so in fact is any economics a science and if not could it ever be we look at the broader discipline of economics and uh, and important one to listen to next time on the debunking economics podcast i'm phil dobby thanks for listening flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company united healthcare insurance plans offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more